Section 24 of The Red and the Black, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Craster. The Red and the Black, Volume 2 by Stendhal. Translated by Horace B. Samuel. Chapter 54. Strasbourg. Fascination. Love gives thee all his love energy and all his power of suffering unhappiness it is only his enchanting pleasures his sweet delights which are outside thy sphere when i saw her ship i was made to say with all her angelic beauty and her sweet weaknesses she is absolutely mine there she is quite in my power such as heaven made her in its pity in order to ravish a man's heart ode of Schiele. Julian was compelled to spend eight days in Strasbourg and try to distract himself by thoughts of military glory and patriotic devotion. Was he in love then? He could not tell. He only felt in his tortured soul that Matilda was the absolute mistress both of his happiness and of his imagination. He needed all the energy of his character to keep himself from sinking into despair. It was out of his power to think of anything unconnected with Mademoiselle de la Mole. His ambition and his simple personal successes had formerly distracted him from the sentiments which Madame de Renal had inspired. Matilda was all-absorbing. She loomed large over his whole future. Julian saw failure in every phase of that future. This same individual whom we remember to have been so presumptuous and haughty at Verrières had fallen into an excess of grotesque modesty. Three days ago, he would only have been too pleased to have killed the Abbe Castanet, and now at Strasbourg, if a child had picked a quarrel with him, he would have thought the child was in the right. In thinking again about the adversaries and enemies whom he had met in his life, he always thought that he, Julian, had been in the wrong. The fact was that the same powerful imagination which had formerly been continuously employed in painting a successful future in the most brilliant colors had now been transformed into his implacable enemy. The absolute solicitude of a traveler's life increased the ascendancy of his sinister imagination. What a boon a friend would have been! But Julian said to himself, Is there a single heart which beats with affection for me? and even if I did have a friend, would not honour enjoin me to eternal silence. He was riding gloomily in the outskirts of Kiel. It is a market town at the banks of the Rhine, and immortalised by Dessay and Gouvion Saint-Cyr. A German peasant showed him the little brooks, roads and islands of the Rhine, which have acquired a name through the courage of these great generals. Julian was guiding his horse with his left hand, while he held unfolded in his right the superb map which adorns the memoirs of the Marshal Saint-Cyr, a merry exclamation made him lift his head. It was the Prince Korasov, that London friend of his, who had initiated him some months before into the elementary rules of high fatuity. Faithful to his great art, Korasov, who had just arrived at Strasbourg, had been one hour in Kale and had never read a single line in his whole life about the siege of 1796, began to explain it all to Julian. The German peasant looked at him in astonishment. 
for he knew enough French to appreciate the enormous blunders which the prince was making. Julian was a thousand leagues away from the peasant's thoughts. He was looking in astonishment at the handsome young man and admiring his grace in sitting a horse. What a lucky temperament, he said to himself, and how his trousers suit him, and how elegantly his hair is cut. Alas, if I had been like him, it might have been that she would not have come to dislike me after loving me for three days. When the prince had finished his siege of Kell, he said to Julian, You look like a trappist. You are carrying to excess that principle of gravity which I enjoined upon you in London. A melancholy manner cannot be good form. What is wanted is an air of boredom. If you are melancholy, it is because you lack something, because you have failed in something. That means showing one's own inferiority. If, on the other hand, you are bored, it is only that what has made an unsuccessful attempt to please you, which is inferior. So realize, my dear friend, the enormity of your mistake. Julian tossed a crown to the gaping peasant who was listening to them. Good, said the prince. That shows grace and a noble disdain. Very good. And he put his horse to the gallop. Full of stupid admiration, Julian followed him. Ah, if I had been like that, she would not have preferred Croissant to me. The more his reason was offended by the grotesque affectations of the prince, the more he despised himself for not having them. It was impossible for self-disgust to be carried further. The prince, still finding him distinctly melancholy, said to him as they re-entered Strasbourg, Come, my dear fellow, have you lost all your money, or perhaps you are in love with some little actress? The Russian copy French manners, but always at an interval of fifty years. They have now reached the age of Louis XV. These jests about love brought the tears to Julian's eyes. Why should I not consult this charming man, he suddenly said to himself. Well, yes, my dear friend, he said to the prince, you see in me a man who is very much in love and jilted into the bargain. A charming woman who lives in a neighboring town has left me stranded here after three passionate days, and the change kills me. Using fictitious names, he described to the prince Matilda's conduct and character. You need not finish, said Korasov. In order to give you confidence in your doctor, I will finish the story you have confided to me. This young woman's husband enjoys an enormous income, or even more probably she belongs herself to the high nobility of the district. She must be proud about something. Julian nodded his head. He had no longer the courage to speak. Very good, said the prince. Here are three fairly bitter pills that you will take without delay. One. See, madame. What is her name? Every day. Madame de Dubois. What a name, said the prince, bursting into laughter. But forgive me, you find it sublime. Your tactics must be to see madame de Dubois every day. Above all, do not appear to be cold and piqued. Remember the great principle of your century. Be the opposite of what is expected. Be exactly as you were the week before you were honoured by her favours. Ah, I was calm enough then, exclaimed Julian in despair. I thought I was taking pity on her. The moth is burning itself at the candle, continued the prince, using a metaphor as old as the world. 
One, you will see her every day. Two, you will pay court to a woman in her own set, but without manifesting a passion, do you understand? I do not disguise from you that your role is difficult. You are playing a part, and if she realizes you are playing it, you are lost. She has so much intelligence, and I have so little. I shall be lost, said Julian sadly. No, you are only more in love than I thought. Madame de Dubois is preoccupied with herself, as are all women who have been favoured by heaven, with either too much pedigree or too much money. She contemplates herself instead of contemplating you. Consequently, she does not know you. During the two or three fits of love into which she managed to work herself for your special benefit, she saw in you the hero of her dreams, and not the man you really are. But deuce take it, this is elementary, my dear Sohel. Are you an absolute novice? All's life. Let us go into the shop. Look at that charming black cravat. One would say it was made by John Anderson of Burlington Street. Be kind enough to take it and throw far away that awful black cord which you are wearing round your neck. And now, continued the prince, as they came out of the shop of the first hosier of Strasbourg, what is the society in which Madame de Dubois lives? Great God, what a name! Don't be angry, my dear Sorel. I can't help it. Now, whom are you going to pay court to? To an absolute prude, the daughter of an immensely rich stocking merchant. She has the finest eyes in the world, and they please me infinitely. She doubtlessly holds the highest place in the society of the district, but in the midst of all her greatness, she blushes and becomes positively confused if anyone starts talking about trade or shops. And, unfortunately, her father was one of the best-known merchants in Strasbourg. So, said the prince with a laugh, you are sure that when one talks about trade, your fair lady thinks about herself and not about you. This silly weakness is divine and extremely useful. It will prevent you from yielding to a single moment's folly when near her sparkling eyes. Success is assured. Julien was thinking of Madame de Marechal of Fervach, who often came to the Hotel de la Meule. She was a beautiful foreigner who had married the Marechal a year before his death. The one object of her whole life seemed to be to make people forget that she was the daughter of a manufacturer. In order to cut some figure in Paris, she had placed herself at the head of the party of piety. Julian sincerely admired the prince. What would he not have given to have possessed his affectations? The conversation between the two friends was interminable. Korasov was delighted. No Frenchman had ever listened to him for so long. So I have succeeded at last, said the prince to himself complacently, in getting a proper hearing, and that too through giving lessons to my master. So we are quite agreed, he repeated to Julian for the tenth time. When you talk to the young beauty, I mean the daughter of the Strasbourg stocking merchant in the presence of Madame de Dubois, not a trace of passion. But on the other hand, be ardently passionate when you write. Reading a well-written love letter is a prude's supremest pleasure. It is a moment of relaxation. She leaves off posing and dares to listen to her own heart. Consequently, two letters a day. Never, never, said Julian despondently. I would rather be ground in a mortar than make up three phrases. I am a corpse, my dear fellow. Hope nothing from me. 
let me die by the roadside. And who is talking about making up phrases? I have got six volumes of copied-out love letters in my bag. I have letters to suit every variation of feminine character, including the most highly virtuous. Did not Kaliski pay court at Richmond on the Thames, at three leagues from London, you know, to the prettiest Quakeress in the whole of England? Julian was less unhappy when he left his friend at two o'clock in the morning. The prince summoned a copyist on the following day, and two days afterwards Julian was the possessor of fifty-three carefully numbered love letters intended for the most sublime and the most melancholy virtue. The reason why there is not fifty-four, said the prince, is because Kaliski allowed himself to be dismissed. But what does it matter to you if you are badly treated by the stocking merchant's daughter when you only wish to produce an impression upon Madame de Dubois's heart? They went out riding every day. The prince was mad on Julian. Not knowing how else to manifest his sudden friendship, he finished up by offering him the hand of one of his cousins, a rich Moscow heiress, and once married, he added, my influence and that cross of yours will get you made a colonel within two years. But that cross was not given me by Napoleon. Far from it. What does it matter? said the prince. Didn't he invent it? It is still the first in Europe by a long way. Julian was on the point of accepting, but his duty called him back to the great personage. When he left Korasov, he promised to write. He received the answer to the secret note which he had brought and posted towards Paris, but he had scarcely been alone for two successive days before leaving France, and Matilda seemed a worse punishment than death. I will not marry the millions Korasov offers me, he said to himself, and I will follow his advice. After all, the art of seduction is a specialty. He has thought about nothing else except that alone for more than fifteen years, for he is now thirty. One can't say that he lacks intelligence. He is subtle and cunning. Enthusiasm and poetry are impossible in such a character. He is an attorney, an additional reason for his not making a mistake. I must do it. I will pay court to Madame de Fervac. It is very likely she will bore me a little, but I will look at her beautiful eyes, which are so like those other eyes which have loved me more than any one in the world. She is a foreigner. She is a new character to observe. I feel mad, and as though I were going to the devil. I must follow the advice of a friend and not trust myself. End of section 24 Read for you by Chiquito Craster, Birmingham, Alabama